you would please take out your copies of God's Word as we turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, that's pages 5 and 6. We'll be looking over the course of our range here today. We're going to be just taking a look at just the first eight verses of this chapter. And as you get into it, you'll see why. It's always very encouraging when you open up the commentaries for that week and Pretty much all of them will tell you this is the most difficult passage in all of Genesis to interpret. So join with me today as we dive into what is is a chapter that requires a lot of thought. But the Word of God and the things that are important in it are clear. And I pray that you will uh, find as much joy as I have out of this passage here with me today. So, we're going to be reading again Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Please listen carefully, because even this is God's word for us today. So let's look. Verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord today. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to him and ask his blessing on our text today. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we have before us a text that is terrifying, a text that has a lot to say. And I pray that you would help us to look at it carefully and to understand that this, along with the rest of Scripture, is profitable for us. Help us to listen well. Help me to preach it accurately. May we apply it to our lives this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes it can be difficult for us to place ourselves in the story of the Bible. When we look at, for example, when Jerusalem is being sieged and there's a famine that's in the land so great that people are having to consume their own children to survive. For us, we've not experienced that as Americans. It's very difficult to put ourselves into that level of desperation. But I think here in Genesis chapter 6, there might be something that rings a little bit of a bell for us. When we look at verses 5 and 6, and see how far man has fallen, the continual evil that is in his heart, 
For those of you that watch the news nightly or have been seeing some of these images that have been circulating around the internet for the last couple of weeks, I think we might be able to identify. And one of the hard things is looking at these images is understanding where do we go from here? What's God going to do with images like that? What is he going to do with evil to this level? How do we get rid of this? Can he even do that? What we find here in Genesis chapter 6 is we've been here before. And that the Lord has ways of dealing with evil and ways of delivering his people. That's what we saw in 2 Peter when we were reading that in the New Testament, pointing back here, including this passage and its list of things and how the Lord has moved. So we're going to take a look at these things. Now, you'll notice there are a lot of things in here. A lot of questions that people have about this passage. Who are the sons of God? Are they normal human beings from the line of Seth? Or are these angels that are creating these super babies, the men of renown? Who are the Nephilim? What are they even called? What is this about 120 years that man's days are? And what are we talking about when it says God regretted making man? Does this mean that God can make mistakes? Does this mean he can plan one thing and it just not work out? And he should crumple up the paper and toss it away and try again? What is this passage saying? So these are all important things. Some more more than others. But if it's here, if it's in the Bible, it's profitable for us. So we're going to hang with me because there's going to be some, we're going to need to pay attention. We're going to look at some things. But I promise you, we will see how these things are important. So stay with me as we take a look at our two points today. First is that evil has dominated in the world before. We are not actually, as much as newscasters might want to say differently, we're not in uncharted waters. The Lord's been here before, has delivered his people from here before. That's what we're going to take a look in first point. Evil's dominated the world before. And number two, God knows how to save his people. So let's jump in here in Genesis chapter six. It's worth reminding us where we are in scripture. So we, as I mentioned to us last week, the importance of these genealogies. It's like the title crawl in those Star Wars movies, letting you know there's a new episode starting. Here are the generations uh, that we'll, we see in uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, the generations of Adam. And then we saw in Genesis chapter 5 that this is the generations of Seth. And this is the story that we're in right now. That's going to be important for us later. We're telling Seth's family story. And this is going to be the story that we're going to be talking about, particularly his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson Noah. We'll be talking about this story until we get to his death in chapter 9. Then we'll be picking up the story of Abraham. So this is the episode, episode 2, the line of Seth, as we begin here in chapter 6. So, man is multiplying on the face of the land. So far, so good. That was the point. Go forth and multiply. Creation mandate. Genesis 2. Right there. But then we go on and we see things are not as they're supposed to be. What we are finding here is sexual sin. 
What we're finding here is improper marriage all the way back in Genesis chapter 6. Now, I said, first mystery, who are the sons of God? There has been a lot of ink and many scholar hours spent on this question. And the reason why is because there are good biblical reasons to take either approach. Two options, usually, there are, there are more, because with scholars, there's always more. But there's the two principal options are the sons of God or is the godly line of Seth. We've just been talking about in Genesis chapter 5. These are the people that were calling upon the name of the Lord at the end of chapter 4. This is the faithful line. And the daughters of men is the line of Cain, the serpent line, the one that is going to be these two lines warring at each other. And this option says, okay, the sons of God, the people of Seth, and the people of Cain, they're starting to intermarry. And this is a problem because the lines need to be separate. One needs to be holy, set apart for the purpose of bringing in the Savior into the world. And if we're going to mix these two, now we can't see it anymore. Now we don't know if we have a righteous line anymore. Now we don't know if we have something that's been set apart for the special purpose of bringing Jesus into the world. That's a crisis. God's promise is in danger if this is the first interpretation. Of course, the second interpretation is to see the sons of God as fallen angels. Angels that are going beyond what God told them that they can do. And the reason why this is told that is later on in the scriptures, in Job chapter 1, it talks about the sons of God all gathering up in heaven. The angelic court before the face of God. So, that's, so we'll think, ah, okay, there's the sons of God here in Job. That means that's what it means over here. Those are your two options. There's also, as we saw in the New Testament, uh, 1 Peter 3, I think, might be 5. Then there was 2 Peter 2, and then in Jude 6 and 7. There are making references to angels who have sinned, and then the next line that in in almost all of those passages, they'll either mention Noah or some next step in Genesis. So you can see here, if we were to say, okay, well, if we wanted to take the angel line, well, you can go to these passages and say, okay, yep, these passages are talking about that. Or if you take the sons of God line, you can actually look at these New Testament passages and say, well, these angels sinning, it could refer to the original fall when Satan was cast out of heaven. So it doesn't necessarily have to mean that it was the angels that were coming down and doing this thing. Now... I have been convinced on both ends several times this week. Each commentary that I would look at is like, oh, that's a really good point. And it's like, oh, well, maybe this over here. So I am not pounding my fist saying it has to be this way. But where I am for now <laughs> is that this is talking about the sons of Seth. Here's why. And this, I have this reasoning from one of, one of the old seminary professors um, at my seminary made a few interesting points. Here in Genesis chapter 6, the flood is most definitely man's judgment. It's man that are being washed away from, from the face of the earth. And there is no mention of the angels being punished in this chapter, which is what we actually do see in Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent tempts Eve, he gets punished along with humanity. And here there's no mention of these angels being punished. 
I think also we're telling the story of Seth here. And so that this would fit in line with this episode. I think it's also difficult when we look at some passages in the New Testament, like when Jesus is saying that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. There would be these things. These are spiritual beings. How are you able to physically copulate? All these sorts of questions make this a little bit more complicated. But no matter which way you go with this, I don't think that's the main point because that's why it's not super clear. The main point here, as one commentator put it, is that man is completely beyond self-help. Man is completely beyond. There is no Home Depot, you can do it, we can help. It's man, is, man is sunk. Because one of two things has happened. Either sin has clawed its way into heaven itself and has brought fallen angels to this world to create these monsters, which might explain some of the demigod legends in ancient history. Or these two lines are getting together and God's promise is being obscured. Men have gotten to the point where this only evil continually There's no getting yourself out of that. And justifies the response that God is making. Worldwide sin needs a worldwide response. God is not mocked. So now the way that you answer this question, whether it's sons of Seth or angels, helps you interpret where verse 4 is as to who the Nephilim are. The word Nephilim means giant. So it's just a, like a literal, just bringing the Hebrew over into our English translation. And it seems you could read it here in verse 4, that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when whether this is the sons of Seth or fallen angels that are getting together here. So you could see the Nephilim as this, these giant creations out of a, some sort of fusion of angel and humanity, which... I personally find hard to pull together. But I think this is just simply referring to giants um, and who are washed away in the flood. They do show up again in Numbers 13, but I think this is, as along with other commentators, the spies are just exaggerating as to how hard the land is to get into. <laughs> it's like, oh, there's Nephilim there. We can't go in there. But I think here the point is verse 5. While discussions about... Um, Fallen angels or Sethites is interesting. I think really the part that is the most concerning to us is here the second half. Verse 5. Here it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the real problem. How we got here is important. But how we're getting out is what's really important. And I want to spend more time on, I think, the more important verse, which is here in verse 6. It says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. This is something we got to talk about. Does God make plans that go awry? Does God start something and go... Well, that didn't work out. I'm really sorry that I've done it this way. I think if we look at other passages of Scripture, 
we'll actually find that that isn't the case at all. In other parts of Scripture, we can see that there is actually quite a lot that the Lord does not regret. But in order to get there, let's see why why does Moses use this word? Why does he do that? Well, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel 15. Because we'll actually see this word, exact same one, show up again. 1 Samuel 15, verse 11. To set the scene, king of Israel, Saul, has been put into power. And he's not doing so well. Imagine that. Politician being corrupted. He's not been obeying what the Lord has told him to do. And is in fact trying to wander into the office of priest here. And we get 1 Samuel 15. We'll start in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Well, there it is again. God made a king. King sinned. God regrets. How does this work? Well, the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. And it turns out, if we keep the context, going down all the rest of the passage... We'll see what God means by that. So, if you would, slide down with me to verse 29 of that same chapter. We almost have a clarifying remark. It says, And also the glory of Israel, that is God, will not lie or have regret. Same word. What are we supposed to do? God just said he regrets. And now over here we say he doesn't. Did God forget? Having a schizophrenic Jesus up there? No, not at all. Let's keep reading. Will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should regret. What we're saying here, God doesn't regret like you and I do. When we regret something, it's because we didn't know what was coming. When we make a choice... And that choice plays out for us and it doesn't work out the way that we wanted to. We want to go back and make a different choice. We want to change this. We are working from a limited mind that doesn't see the future, that doesn't know all things. God is different. He does know all things because he is in charge of all things. When he regrets, he regrets saying, I know that this was going to happen. How does that work? Well, if you can imagine, I have a quote from John Piper for you. And he reasons through this because we're actually capable of this emotion. Have you ever had to do something that you know you had to do, but it was going to do something you didn't want to see? We have those of you that have had children and have had to discipline the child and the child turns against you because of that. Do you go back and change the discipline if you could? No. You know what you had to do. What you had to do was correct. But you're still sorry that this is the way that it turns out. That's how it is with the Lord. The Lord is not surprised by what happens. Because we can look at a number of places. And for example, Psalm 33, 8 through 11 
It says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsels of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Isaiah 46.10 says that the Lord knows the end from the beginning. In Psalm, I think it's 104, says that he causes the grass to grow. The Lord, and we could cite so many others. In fact, there is, I'll give you one more. In Numbers 23, 19, an echo of 1 Samuel we've already read. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not make it good? What the Bible does for us is it helps open our minds to new categories. We can't, it's hard for us to imagine, though we can, it's hard for us to imagine regretting something that you wouldn't change. But this is how our God works. Now, why is that important for us to know? There's two things here. The one is to know that God's promises will be fulfilled. God is not going to say, well, I forgave so-and-so, but wow, is this person making me regret that decision? I had to go back on that. It's never going to happen. It says that when, he, when you are saved, he holds you in his father's hand and no one is able to pluck him out. So it's like, well, if all this is true, why use this word? Well, I think, again, from one of my old seminary professors, Dr. Matthews, he goes on a little bit further in verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. What this opens up for us is that God cares. We do not worship an unfeeling machine. There is compassion that sits in the heart of the Lord. Because we see that in Jesus, don't we? Jesus is moved with compassion, even standing outside of Lazarus' tomb. That's my favorite point to examine. Jesus is weeping in front of the tomb when he, A, waited until Lazarus was dead. B, is about to raise him from the dead in the next five minutes. That we see in Isaiah that God says that I kill and I make alive. He's in charge of the whole process, and yet he weeps. You have a high priest that understands you, who feels emotions, who genuinely cares. God is not zeros and ones. God has a heart. He feels this. But he's not some sort of sniveling emotional wreck either. This is not God saying, oh, what am I going to do? These people have sinned and I don't have any options left. That's not who God is either. You serve a God who cares, but a God who can answer the bell. When there is sin, look out. We don't get to emotionally bully God into what we want him to do. That is not the God we serve. And that when it's time to bring judgment, oh, there's judgment. 
There should be an element of us, while we are completely secure in Christ, we are, do not have to fear judgment if you have put your trust in Christ, turn from your sins and turn to him. You have nothing to fear. But there should be some respect when we approach God. Remember, I had a friend of mine that used to work at the Alabama power plant. And nearby, there is this giant cable that they have and a huge area fenced off away from the cable. And even if you walk along the fence, my friend would tell me you could feel the hair rise up on your body and move towards that electrical zone. Now, he's perfectly safe on the other side of the fence. But you back up a little bit, don't you? There's power over there. That's what we see here in Genesis. That he is going to blot them out. The word blot there is the same word that you would use for wiping off a dish. Separating something entirely from that surface. Sauce, ketchup on that plate, gone. No trace of that. That's what he's talking about to humanity and earth. That's some strong language here. And furthermore, he says that his days shall be 120 years. Some say it's like, okay, does that mean there's 120 years until the flood? Or like this is going to be the age speed limit for as old as anybody is ever going to get. I favor this latter part because it talks about Noah being 500 years old when he's called by the Lord and that when he goes into the ark, he's 600, which is 100 years, not 120 Now, Noah lives a long time after this flood, and I think as commentators point out, this is God showing mercy, just like he did with Adam and Eve. Didn't kill them as soon as they took the plant, doesn't enact this thing immediately, but it's pretty close. You see these massive lifetimes that are then shrunk down after this point. The Lord limits how long we can be alive and how much evil we're allowed to commit. And that this is a penalty that has extended to all of humanity, including us. So here, the Lord begins his worldwide flood. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, where are you going to get point two from? God knows how to save his people. Looks like all we've seen is that he just knows how to drown everybody. Last one, we get to verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One theme you're going to see all through the rest of Genesis is mercy and judgment. We've seen this already in Genesis chapter 3. There's going to be death, but it's going to be life that's going to come from you. There's going to be a serpent that's going to bruise the heel, but his head is going to be crushed. And here... It's going to be a worldwide flood. I'm going to wipe humanity off the face of the earth like you would clean a dish. But there is one that I'm going to show grace to. Does this mean that Noah was impressive to God? I don't think so. The Lord is the one who is choosing. I'm going to find favor in this one. I'm going to give him grace so that his family alone is going to survive this judgment. And we'll see how this character plays out next time. So what do we take away from us here? How does this make a difference for us on Monday morning? 
Well, the one takeaway that I would like you to see is when you are watching the world on fire, know it's been worse. And that the Lord is able to deliver his people in unexpected ways. You wouldn't have thought, well, the way that he's going to deliver your people, you're going to love this plan. We're destroying everything. But what it does, wipes away this evil that we have Noah. Now there's no question as to the line. It's going to come from Noah. He's going to preserve God's promises. Even in the midst of this horrific judgment, if we're honest, he's going to provide this way. And the same thing is true with us. God doesn't change because he doesn't regret like man does, remember? He's true to his word. He's promised that he's going to deliver his people. And we got to see that in 2 Peter, didn't we? Written thousands of years later after this text, he gets to just add to the roster of all the ways that people have sinned, God has brought his judgment, and has delivered his people out of the midst of it. That's our comfort that we bring. When the rockets are firing, when the people are dying, when judgment is coming, do not fear. For I am your God. You will not be burned. You will not be shaken. I am your strong fortress. That's what Genesis 6 tells us. Second thing that this should make a difference for us on Monday morning is when we see those that are headed for judgment, we need to tell them this is coming. Life is not about the next paycheck. Life's not about the next vacation. Life is about being ready for this judgment that's to come. So warn. Be Noah in the front of the boat saying, there's plenty of room. Come to Christ. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You are weary and heavy laden. Come to me and I will give you rest. He will not cast out any who come to him and proclaim a salvation because there's a bigger judgment coming. As we'll see, the line of the serpent survives even in the midst of Noah's sons. That there becomes one that continues the awful tradition. Sin survived the flood. but it won't survive the next one. When judgment comes, that's it for sin and sinners who are not in Christ. So proclaim this news to people that there is salvation that is available to them. That there is salvation available for you if you are here with us and have not put your trust in Christ. I would tell you, judgment's coming. It's nearer than it was. Even those people with the sandwich boards, they've got a point. The end is near. It's nearer than it was. God's not kidding. Judgments come before. So flee to Christ. Flee to him. He will provide you safety through the waters. He'll provide you salvation from the judgment to come. And will deliver you to a land that has been cleansed. A land that sin has been blotted out and will bring you to a place of peace, 
Hold that hope, beloved. Because there's no other hope elsewhere. It's not in a better government. It's not in finding a speaker of the house. It's not peace in the Middle East. It's not where our peace is. Our peace is in Christ. No one's getting away with anything. Judgment will be meted out. And for those who are in Christ, salvation will be given. Let me close the words of Psalm 2, favorite of mine. As we look to the news, keep this in mind. Speaking of the psalmist looking forward to the Messiah. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this passage, this reminder that sin is not a joke to you. But your word is not a joke either. That you will not leave us without the salvation that you've promised. You will not regret saving us. Not because we're so great. Not because we are unregrettable. But because you are so good. Because you are so wise. I pray that you would help us to have a reverence for you. An awe for what you are capable of. And yet a holy rest and comfort knowing that you can and will deliver your people. Oh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.